Hello, and welcome back to the 46 Brooklyn podcast. I am your host, Ben Link, the president of 46 Brooklyn Research, but I'm also a pharmacist fed up with fake artificially inflated drug prices. Today's episode is the second one in our ongoing Drug Pricing 101 series. As a reminder, the goal of our Drug Pricing 101 series is to introduce the core concepts of the U.S. prescription drug supply chain to hopefully foster a better baseline understanding of the data available at 46brooklyn.com and the system as a whole. As with any educational endeavor, I've attempted to present the information in a logical manner to hopefully ease digestion. However, I want to acknowledge and recognize that everyone learns a little differently. To that end, your comments and questions will only make our content better. All right, with that introduction out of the way, let's pick up where we left off last time. In our last episode, we identified what the term U.S. drug supply chain actually means and why you or I or anyone should care about it. Long story short, even if you don't take any prescription medications, your tax dollars are still footing the bill for the fake inflated drug prices that are so pervasive here in the United States. But to understand why our drug prices have gotten so out of whack with other countries, we first need to understand how the system works. And that starts with the drug supply chain participants. As we alluded to previously, there are actually a lot of participants within the drug supply chain beyond just the patient and pharmacy you might immediately think of. In fact, there are so many that we will be spending the next several episodes introducing the most significant players and talking about their impact on drug prices. To start, I thought it would make the most sense to discuss what I will call direct drug supply chain participants. And I want to use the term direct because these participants are one that at some point in time physically touch the medications we care so much about. So on this episode, we are going to introduce the roles of patients, pharmacies, and drug wholesalers before spending the majority of our time detailing drug manufacturers. Let's start with a quick high-level overview, and then we'll backtrack to review each entity a little closer. The first input into our supply chain is with a drug being made by a drug manufacturer. After a manufacturer makes their drug, they sell their drug. While many years ago it was not uncommon for pharmacies to purchase drugs directly from the manufacturers themselves, today an overwhelming majority of medications produced by manufacturers are sold to wholesalers. Drug wholesalers are middlemen that purchase drugs from a variety of manufacturers. They do this because it allows pharmacies, the next entity in our direct drug supply chain, to buy the drugs they need from a single source and via a single contract, rather than having to spend a lot of time sourcing drugs from the dozens of drug manufacturers they might otherwise have to purchase drugs from. If you think about it, this is not too dissimilar from a grocery store like Kroger letting you buy both Kraft macaroni and cheese and General Mills cereal. Rather than us as consumers purchasing the products directly from their sources, we can purchase both and thousands of other products all from one entity, dramatically increasing the efficiency of our purchasing. This is a lot like how drug wholesalers functions for medicines. 
The final direct step in our drug supply chain is the pharmacy, which sells the drugs they've purchased from wholesalers to patients and also the patient's insurance if they have drug coverage. So to simplify, a drug is made by the drug manufacturer, sold to a drug wholesaler, who then lets a pharmacy buy drugs to ultimately sell to patients. To be clear, because clarity is often lacking from current drug pricing conversations, this is just an overview. And there may be some relationships where this dynamic is not exactly as described, such as a pharmacy buying directly from a manufacturer and cutting out the wholesaler. But this is meant to be an overview, and what I've described is overwhelmingly true in the majority of cases. Now that we generally understand how the drug supply chain moves physical drugs throughout its system, I think it only makes sense that we start the deeper conversation with drug manufacturers, as they represent the first input into the drug supply chain as they're actually producing the drug. When it comes to producing a drug, a manufacturer is purchasing the ingredients to make their drugs from multiple sources, combining those components into a finished product and selling that product into the drug channel. It's worth noting that a drug manufacturer has several components to the cost they incur to produce a drug. If they are brand name medication, meaning a medication protected by patents and that has no direct substitute, they spent a considerable amount of time and money current estimates are over a billion dollars, to develop a single drug. These are studies that first in a laboratory setting identify what substance might actually treat a disease, but also clinical studies where they test out giving their drugs to actual patients. These are studies that first in a laboratory setting identify what substance might actually work to treat a disease, but also clinical studies where researchers test out giving the drugs to patients before they even know whether for certain they'll work. The alternative to brand name drugs is generics, which are copies of previously patent protected drugs. Generic drugs also have research costs, but they are considerably less because they rely upon the clinical work the brand name medication has already conducted. In addition to these research and development costs, which a drug manufacturer needs to recruit through sales of their drugs, a drug product, whether brand or generic, is composed of both active and inactive ingredients that the drug manufacturer has to purchase in order to get a drug product to market, and so must recoup as part of the sale of their drug. So after a drug manufacturer has developed a product, and after they have prepared a finished product capable of being shipped and sold, they need to sell that product into the drug supply chain. Like any other business, they're going to calculate their input costs to produce the drug, those research and development component costs that we were just talking about, identify the margin they'd like to make, and bring the drug to market in a way to hopefully make themselves, and those who took the risk investing in the drug's development, a profit on the drug. Bear in mind that not all these investments result in bringing profitable drugs to market. And thus, it is also true that drug manufacturers likely factor these unsuccessful investments and losses into the cost of the products they do end up bringing to market. Taking a step back, in a traditional market that is not prescription drugs, a manufacturer would be able to generate profits by establishing a manufacturer-suggested retail price, or MSRP, that is above their cost to produce a product. 
The MSRP is a suggested price that retailers might decide to use without pressure from the manufacturer. This price is largely established by the manufacturer to indirectly control retail prices and maintain brand equity. The price itself already may have a sizable markup calculated into its structure, so retails have flexibility to decrease or increase the price. However, to bring a drug to market today, there are actually a multitude of prices that get established for a drug beyond just the typical MSRP. The multitude of prices complicates the conversations on drug pricing and can make drawing comparisons to other markets challenging or even impossible. This is because some of the most important prices for a drug, depending upon your perspective within the drug supply chain, might ultimately have nothing to do with a price established by the manufacturer. Before we dive into the specific prices controlled by the drug manufacturer, I want to be sure that you understand when we discuss drug prices in this country, we often intermix the actual prices being discussed. When you step back and think about it, it's kind of odd that there are so many different price points for a drug, given that it is generally a pretty simple transaction at the end of the day. Producer to wholesaler, wholesaler to retailer, retailer to consumer. But despite the general simplicity of the transaction, a given drug in this country typically has at least nine different quote-unquote prices that might actually be being discussed when the public is discussing drug prices. Each of them is potentially very relevant or irrelevant to the conversation at hand. This begs the question, why so many drug prices? Well, the number of price points is not driven by the complexity of the transaction. The transaction, as described, is no more complicated than any other good or commodity. Rather, it's driven by the fact that in the U.S., drugs are largely paid for with other people's money. We alluded to this in our prior episode, with more than 70% of drugs being paid for by a federal or state program. And then a large chunk of the rest are paid for by employers who normally don't even have visibility into each and every individual transaction. This creates a load of different willingness to pay for drugs, depending upon the information and ability to pay of the payer. So all of these different prices have evolved to exploit all these different willingness to pay. And to that end, we have established a glossary of key pharmacy terms, which we will build up during the course of these podcasts on our website at 46brooklyn.com. But don't be surprised if you find this all a little confusing at first and need to go back and forth between our website and this podcast to get comfortable with the idea of which drug prices we're talking about or distinguishing one price from the next. All right, let's begin talking about the drug manufacturer price. Arguably the most accurate price a drug manufacturer sets if our goal in discussing drug prices is to know the true cost to the drug supply chain is average sales price or ASP. This is because ASP is defined by federal law and is the calculation of the weighted average manufacturer's sale price for a drug for all purchasers net of price adjustments. So this means that a drug manufacturer goes through its books, looks at the sales it actually makes after adjusting for whatever discounts they're offering to whomever they're selling the drugs, accounts for the volumes of those purchases, and reports that price back as the average sales price or ASP. 
Said differently, ASP reflects how the drug manufacturer is selling their drugs to anyone who might purchase their drugs weighted by the volume of their purchases and adjusting for any discounts. To be transparent, there are certain types of sales exempt from the ASP calculation, but generally they're considered nominal sales, meaning that they're small enough to not really matter anyway if we were to include them. At least hopefully that's the idea. So there is drug price number one that a drug manufacturer sets, but ASP is largely meaningless to the price you or I pay at the pharmacy counter, nor is it representative of the price our insurance company may pay for a drug, nor is it what a pharmacy may pay for a drug. The only time ASP is generally used in practice is when determining the price paid for drugs purchased by Medicare inside hospital systems. Not drugs you get and take away from the hospital, but drugs actually given to you within the confines of the hospital walls. When Medicare is making these purchases, they're generally paying ASP plus 6% or 106% of ASP for drugs. This makes sense in that ASP would be the lowest price available and the government wants to get a good deal. However, they're also recognizing that a margin would need to be added on top of that low sales price in order to actually have hospital staff to dispense and administer the drug or even a building for the drug to be dispensed within. However, this Medicare example offers us the first glimpse into what incentives can be created when setting drug reimbursements. Because margin in these instances is a fixed percentage based upon the price of the drug, it may weirdly encourage higher cost drugs because 6% of a million dollar drug is more money than 6% of a thousand dollar drug, even if the same amount of hospital resources are needed to administer both drugs. This may explain some of the growth in prescription drug launch prices over the years, but we offer this only as a teaser to future conversations and to contextualize the role of ASP prices today. The next price to discuss is actually quite similar to ASP, and that price is average manufacturer price, or AMP or AMP. AMP is also a price established in federal law and is also a calculation based on actual sales the drug manufacturer is making. The difference between ASP and AMP is that AMP is the average price paid to the manufacturer by wholesalers in the U.S. for drugs distributed to retail pharmacies after discounts. So here, the average manufacturer price is a more specific cost than the average sales price, as it's just wholesaler purchases rather than waiting for all purchases across the drug manufacturer's clients and only those subset of purchases that wholesalers are making to their retail pharmacy customers. Also, unlike ASP, AMP does not include all potential discounts the drug manufacturer is offering the wholesalers. In other words, it doesn't include in its calculation the customary prompt pay discounts wholesalers extend to their retail pharmacies. If the distinction between ASP and AMP isn't all that clear, that is okay. But hopefully it gives you a sense for how even knowing what we might call the true net price of a drug can get complicated as it depends on what your assumptions regarding net price are when you're having a conversation around drug pricing. AMP's role in the current drug pricing is similar to ASP's role. 
Unlike ASP, AMP is pretty much exclusively used by Medicaid, not Medicare, to calculate the rebates drug manufacturers need to pay for purchases Medicaid is making on drugs. Note that this is not payment for services rendered, such as Medicare reimbursing hospitals for drugs, but rather a rebate that Medicaid is collecting after the fact for purchases already made to offset their costs. Said differently, Medicaid already paid the pharmacy for the drug and is looking to get a rebate off that purchase. And if you'll forgive me an antiquated reference, this is not too dissimilar from you buying a vacuum cleaner at a store and sending your receipt in the mail to get a rebate from the manufacturer. However, in the aggregate, Medicaid obtains nearly 60% of all their drug expenditures back via rebates through this AMP calculation. Kind of a big deal when you consider Medicaid as a $70 billion purchaser of drugs annually. And an important consideration to keep in mind when discussing drug purchases. The price the manufacturer is selling to the market needs to be sufficient to cover the cost of these AMP-based rebates. The last price a drug manufacturer sets that we will look at and talk about today is called Wholesale Acquisition Cost, or WAC. WAC is an estimate of the drug manufacturer's price for a drug to wholesalers or other direct purchasers, not including any discounts or rebates from that purchase. So if you're thinking about starting a drug wholesaler and creating a business by buying drugs from multitudes of drug manufacturers, a WAC price might represent what you'd consider an MSRP for that business. This is the price you might expect to pay for a given drug absent any discounts you might be able to negotiate for those drugs from manufacturers. Note that WAC is also defined by federal law with rules around how this information gets reported. But as you can see, if you pay for a drug at a WAC price, you already know that that drug is actually already marked up, sometimes quite a bit, because it's not considering discounts to its price, which can be a lot of money. At the end of the day, none of these prices are as important to determining what you or I pay at the pharmacy as the next price to be discussed, which is average wholesale price or AWP. But sadly, the conversation around AWP is going to take us longer than the time we have left in this episode. For now, understand that unlike the prices we reviewed so far, AWP is a price that has no basis in federal law. That inherently makes it a fake price because there is no oversight of it, and more importantly, no robust legal standards that holds its setting accountable. Additionally, AWP is reported to be an estimate of the price retail pharmacies pay for drugs from wholesalers. However, as we've already learned in this episode, it's important to understand the context of these drug pricing benchmarks. When we talked about ASP, we understood that it was a price net of all discounts and applicable across all sales of a drug. When we talked about AMP, we understood it was a price for wholesalers based upon their sales to retail pharmacies, but it doesn't account for some of the most common drug discounts we know to exist. And when we talked about WAC, we understood it to be an estimate of wholesale price absent any known discounts. As we've arrived at AWP, we have no 
basis to contextualize its price because there is no statutory definition for it, meaning that it can be anything. And if you'll indulge me a Family Guy reference, this means it could even be a boat. So on the next episode, we will tackle the complexity that is AWP, which despite its lack of objectivity relative to the other pricing benchmarks discussed in this episode, in many ways is the backbone of all pharmacy transactions in this country. As before, I want to thank you for listening and I hope you'll tune in to our next episode. The 46 Brooklyn podcast would like to thank McGowan Braybender for the use of their facilities in recording our podcast. We'd also like to thank Ben at Journeyman Productions for assistance with our music and sound. As a reminder to our listeners, if you're curious about any of the materials discussed on today's episode, additional information can always be found on 46brooklyn.com.